Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With the latest WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and we have a ton to break down from this week in the world of wwe obviously we will be talking about everything that happened across smackdown and raw but vintage chris vanini returns to the show and we will be discussing one year of wwe creative underneath triple h paul levesque aka trips got the book for the last 12 months and we will be breaking all of that down for you we will also be discussing some of our notes from american nightmare becoming cody rhodes the big documentary that was released prior to SummerSlam on peacock certainly if you have not seen that yet we won't be giving any major spoilers but we do have some thoughts coming out of that and we will be touching three notable wwe headlines coming out of the weekend all of that plus smackdown And Raw, that means three segments to open the show. The main event, Good, Bad, and Ugly, and The Last Word. That is a six-segment show coming up for you right here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. With that said, let's kick this show off as we always do with a set of requests and reminders. First, I hope you all still remember that this podcast is all about Defy. So please, folks. Stop being marks for yourselves and... Go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the Silver King Adam Silverstein, Vintage Chris Vanini, and the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Please visit Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read that right here on the podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. It's also where you can send in DMs and tweets to get featured on the show. Again, on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I truly hope that you do as well because for just $5 a month or $50 for the year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. And the reason to do that more than anything is to support the podcast, support myself and Chris as we continue to do this show completely free for all of you. But we also give you extras when you become an official Getting Overhead. You get news posts every single Friday and perhaps more often, primarily about WWE, but we do try to get some AEW news in there as well. We also do bonus audio coming out of Raw, SmackDown, NXT, and AEW Dynamite. We have not done many for Dynamite as of late. The Silver King has just not been home on Wednesday nights. That should change. We're going to get back to that this week, but you get so much. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Again, $5 for the month, $50 for the year. We love having all of you join us as official getting overheads. And I do want to note that we have a new monthly member this week. Unfortunately, they didn't leave a message or a name. I found initials in the email. Those are VL. So VL, shout out to you for uh, joining and becoming an official getting overhead. Not just a shout out, allow me to acknowledge you. Acknowledge. Acknowledge. Big acknowledgement right there. Acknowledge. With that, let me finally welcome vintage Chris Vanini to today's show. And Chris, we have an absolute ton to talk about in the world of WWE today. More segments than perhaps we've ever had on a single edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. And yet, 
there's nothing I want to talk about more right now than CM Punk and what is going on with him and AEW. We're going to save that for later in the week. My hope is, of course, that you will be able to join us and have that conversation. But real quick, like one or two lines, is this not just absolutely not only ridiculous, but completely predictable? All I'll say as a tease is that you were right. Look, there's there's a lot of and things. I was right. There's a lot of things I love yeah. in this world. I love my dog. I love my family, my friends, uh, sports, wrestling. But there's nothing more. And all of you know this, longtime listeners of this show. There is nothing more the Silver King loves than being correct. So with that, Chris, let's actually get into today's show and all the WWE topics that we want to talk about. We're going deep on this episode, and we're going to kick things off with finally taking a look at Triple H having the book one year later. I think when we do this overall analysis of Triple H as the lead creative voice in WWE, we need to contextualize it in two ways. There was the period of time where Triple H was completely on his own uh, when Vince McMahon left the company and retired. And then obviously there was booking since Vince has returned, which strangely, basically one year to the date, has now led into Vince stepping away again, but not because he's retiring or because of the WWE merger or anything like that, but rather the fact that he had spinal surgery and is laid up and presumably not that concerned about creative. So it's almost like it's going through three phases, Triple H by himself, Triple H with Vince in his ear, perhaps making some decisions, and now Triple H back on his own again. I think overall, though, it's fair to say that there's no question WWE's creative has improved on the whole from where it stood, not just when they returned to live crowds coming out of the pandemic, but in the multiple years prior to the pandemic. There's an emphasis on longer term storytelling on the whole, I would say, and that's even beyond the bloodline itself. Bookings almost always make sense and play into future plans. And even when we question them in the moment, if we're in a good, bad and ugly segment and we say bad because it didn't really make sense, the vast majority of the time, within a few weeks, they ultimately come back and you say, oh, I see why they did X, Y, or Z. And he's definitely using more of the roster than had been used in a long time, especially when it comes to the tag team division. And I'd say somewhat the women's division, but obviously there's improvements that still need to be made there. Building out the latter third of the roster, that reduced the propensity for rematches that we had. It reduced it significantly, actually. And it kept most storylines fresh. More tag teams, more women involved than had been in years, as I mentioned. And then you have the Intercontinental and tag team titles, which have been completely reborn. The United States title seemed like it was on the way to that as well. With Austin Theory, we'll talk about his title reign. But now it seems like it might be on the way to joining them with Rey Mysterio as champion, that's a topic we'll talk about later. And I think, Chris, there's no better, and we're going to get to the other side of Triple H's booking, but there's no better like microcosm of the booking successes that he's had than what's happened with Judgment Day. Rhea Ripley went from spinning her wheels to being the top woman in the company. Finn Balor has not won the big one, but you cannot deny that he has been revitalized as a main event player. Someone who matters is heavily featured on Raw, frequently in the main event segment. Damian Priest is doing the best work of his career. And Dominic Mysterio was sitting there as someone who were like, man, he's riding his father's coattails. He needs to go back to NXT. He really shouldn't be on the main roster. 
to arguably now the number two heel in the entire company. Pairing Trish Stratus and Zoe Stark. Bobby Lashley and the Street Profits now. That feels fresh. Somehow, revitalized damage control, which looked like it was in the gutter with Eosky winning Money in the Bank and now the women's title. Gunther's dominance, uh, reuniting Imperium, sticking with Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn after WrestleMania, ensuring that people had big moments, those that were going after Roman Reigns, even if they didn't ultimately beat him for the title, keeping Cody Rhodes mega hot, not rushing the LA night move, but I would say mostly getting it right. And we can go on from there. And there are flaws and we will talk about those as well, Chris, but I want to get you in here in general. I just feel the WWE product, it is so much less from a creative standpoint, insulting And I feel that my time watching Raw and SmackDown on Monday and Friday, respectively, is valuable. They are paying off my commitment as a viewer to their product. And I cannot say that that was always the case previously. In fact, it was rarely the case previously. Look, the biggest case for me in the success of Triple H's booking is that it's been very fun to do this podcast. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Yeah, there (laughs) has. Seriously, there has not been a day we've come in to be like, man, there's nothing interesting to talk about. And that was good chunks of the first two years of this podcast. We started at the beginning of the pandemic, so we kind of had to adjust to that at the time. Mm -hmm. But it's really how often did we come in and man, three hours of Monday Night Raw and there was like two interesting things that happened. Raw has maybe had its best multi-month streak of being interesting since it went to three hours. Absolutely. It no yeah. longer feels like a it no longer feels like a third to the half of the, to half of the show is complete filler, is garbage. Everything feels like it matters of varying degrees, but it doesn't feel like we didn't know what to do. We threw in a rematch. We'll figure it out next week. Everything has a purpose mm-hmm. and that it is not a coincidence that viewership has gone up since then. It's a better television product. You're rewarded for watching it. It's more enjoyable. And as WWE heads into its new TV negotiations, it's in a great spot in part because the ratings are up in large part because of Triple H's booking. No, you're right. And and WWE, they did make a lot of smart decisions that maybe were not Triple H, right? So the ability to go after Bad Bunny, and Logan Paul and start getting WWE featured in front of some of these younger 18 to 49, really the 18 to 34 audience where that demo is now growing. And that is the reason why ratings are on the rise. And look, Monday Night Football is coming up and the NFL is an absolute beast. Ratings will go down probably by a couple to a few hundred thousand viewers, you know, in the next couple of months, it's going to happen. But they are better positioned now to maintain a higher level of rating, not dip into like the 1.4, 1.5 million that they were doing for Raw against the NFL, maybe stay around 1.6, 1.7. That does matter. That is a difference. And then they're also better positioned to rebound from it once the NFL eventually ends in four months. But to your point, WWE's success right now, yes, it has a lot to do with marketing and strategy, the things I just mentioned. No question about it. But There is a direct line. When you look at the ratings like chart, for example, okay, there's a direct line between Vince McMahon no longer being the booker, Triple H getting the book. Now there was a couple weeks spike out of interest to see what would happen initially. But then once that spike kind of dipped back down, 
Then you see all of a sudden an upward trajectory and it went up and up and up and it's leveled out. And they are setting records at arenas every single time they visit them for Raw, SmackDown, premium live events. Yes, a significant portion of that is ticket prices being higher than ever, but they're also selling more tickets than they ever have before. We are regularly getting Raws and SmackDowns now that have 9, 10, 11, 12,000 people attending them. When is the last time you saw that on a regular basis? Yeah, you'd get it at Madison Square Garden Mm -hmm. or they'd go to Montreal or Chicago and they'd sell a lot of tickets. But when did they ever, like, they just did um, Winnipeg on Monday. And (laughs) I'm going to talk about Winnipeg on Monday night, trust me. But they sold like 9,500 tickets. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't have known it by the way the crowd sounded, but still, they did a great job. So, Yes, to your point, there's a direct line between his booking and WWE's financial uh, and television rating success, which would pretend itself into financial success. But all of that said, and all the praise that we just gave Triple H with his booking, it has made tremendous strides and improvements. WWE is better off now with him as the head booker than it has been in at least a decade, if not longer, okay? But- he's hardly without his flaws, right? Most notable has been the booking of the women's division. There are legitimate reasons for some of the creative struggles. Injuries have affected a lot of plans, but he also kind of pulled a Tony Khan with the women's tag team titles and dragged out plans instead of pivoting and doing something else when Ronda Rousey and then Shayna Baszler got injured. And the product, the titles, and the entire division suffered because of that decision. Asuka over Bianca Belair at WrestleMania 39 was a missed opportunity. They did it, sure, the next month or whenever at Night of Champions. They could have given Asuka that moment on a big stage. Too much obvious protection of Charlotte Flair. Rhea Ripley is over like Rover right now. Like I said, number one woman in the division. She's yet to have a legitimate singles title challenger since WrestleMania. Now that's changing, seemingly for payback with Raquel Rodriguez, but it's ridiculous that she was not on SummerSlam in a big match, despite the injury situation with Liv Morgan. And on that note, there is a sizable women's roster now, but still a lot of people not being used consistently. Shotzi, Candice LeRae, and Indy Hartwell seem to be rotating in. Unholy Union has disappeared since they lost the NXT women's tag team titles. The KCs are on TV here and there. They should be featured all the time because if they were, they'd become huge fan favorites. Piper, just came back. We were wondering for months where she was at. Tegan Knox has disappeared off the face of the earth. Emma, Meechan, Zelina Vega, they should be regularly utilized. And then moving away from the women, Chris, you have Austin Theory's booking as US champion, the lack of opportunity given to him to create a character or do anything with his gimmick. It's been a massive head scratcher. It's great the Street Profits are now back in focus. They were sidelined for way too long. These names might seem silly for me to complain about, but I have no idea why Maximum Male Models was shelved when it was getting over. At least it could have been an online gimmick. Elias, Riddick Moss, Rick Boogs, they've disappeared. Elias and Rick Boogs were over like Rover separately. There's still too many short matches on TV, particularly for the women, but it happens with the men as well. And you have the typical Triple H booking tropes relying on heels and long heel champion reigns to lead these shows rather than focusing on baby faces. The U.S. title changed on SmackDown. It was the first time a men's singles title changed in WWE in 250 days. That's like two-thirds of a year. And then obviously, 
I've talked about the missed opportunity with Balor and not making him world heavyweight champion. I can't understand that booking. Maybe it makes sense down the line, but right now for me, it doesn't. So my point is, look, Triple H is doing a lot better than Vince McMahon was. WWE's creative and booking is a lot better than it was under Vince McMahon. The business is doing better than it was when Vince McMahon was completely in control of creative. But even despite all that, the guy still has his flaws, and it's always fair to point those out just as much as it is fair to praise him for his successes. You you made an interesting point on accident, I think, there. For one, the women's booking, yes, it's been an issue. Short matches, injuries have played a role, but it took a lot of time for him to get it, I think, where he wanted to get it. But you you listed a lot of people there who aren't doing anything right now. Mm-hmm. Remember, when Triple H took over, WWE had gone through a couple of years of massive cuts. Yes. The roster was tiny. And when Triple H came back in and over the past year, they've added a lot more people to the roster, which is good. It's it's more work for everybody. So as part of having a bigger roster, there are going to be more people who have nothing to do. And frankly, almost every single person you listed there, I don't really care about. They're they're low card position they're low card type of people for the for the most no part. that's fair it's fair point a lot of them are, well you know them from nxt really well so it just there's a different view well of that. to me it, it's i more... didn't hear any of those people and i'm like go ahead sorry i didn't mean to yeah it, 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 it's a lot of them are from nxt i don't have i don't have the backstory to them we'll get into indy hartwell later in this show sure but along with that there's not really anybody currently regularly on tv that i'm like ugh i don't want to see them you know like there's only so much space when i went to SummerSlam two weeks ago my dad kept saying i want to see more of the miz he's a guy that mm-hmm. I, I like and now the miz is back you know so like there's there's just not as much space so i don't really get upset about riddick moss and and and, and, and candace lorraine and these people not doing much mostly because the people that they do have doing things are doing good things and they matter and one of the biggest changes from triple h Vince McMahon to triple h is that it's not just focused on one thing Yes, the main event, Roman Reigns, the bloodline, they get the most attention. But so often under Vince, everything else would be ignored. Right. That is not happening now. Even the low card stuff that's going on is getting attention. So, yeah, there are more people not doing as much. But that's part of having a bigger roster now, which I do think is a positive. By, by the way, did you just enunciate uh, into UG? <laughs> like you enunciated the G as part of that? No, I don't think I meant to say that. That's how it came off to me. Uh, but no, I, I don't mean to diminish your point. You make a great point. And I did mention a lot of people who are not being used. I failed to mention a lot of the people that he either rehired or is now featuring and using. So he took LA Knight, who was Max Dupree, and put him back into LA Knight, right? Bronson Reed is being heavily featured on TV. He was a person that they resigned. Bray Wyatt, you know, you can say whatever you want about the gimmick and how he was used. But his return and the White Rabbit stuff was incredible. Like the entire wrestling world and and even some forms of entertainment were talking about that. Braun Strowman, bringing him back, he was massively, insanely over both before he was with Ricochet and then with Ricochet. He got injured, right? Um, Tommaso Ciampa, you know he would not be booked like he, I mean, okay, he's losing matches right now. It's probably not the best point. He wouldn't be on TV as much as he would be on TV if Triple H didn't have the book. And they did start teasing the DIY angle, by the way, on social media. Chelsea Green wouldn't be part of the show. She would have still been on the Independence or an Impact or wherever she was. Sonya Deville wouldn't have been on TV as much. So yes, you're right. Um, 
the positives way outweigh the negatives. And the negatives, yes, sometimes when I'm kind of saying these, they almost feel like nitpicking given where WWE creative had been for the prior decade. I think we forget, and you mentioned it earlier, but largely how difficult it was to watch these shows and how truly rare it was to have a truly great episode. Like we would do the good, the bad, and the ugly here. Half would be bad, a couple would be ugly, and we'd be like, what are we doing now? There are some weeks where there's one bad or there's two, or we're like, Mm -hmm. or even the ones that are bad, we're like, eh, you know, if they just did this, it would have been good. Like we're so close on some of those respects. This was one year of Triple H on the main roster with the book, something he had never done before. There were a lot of obstacles, including Vince returning to the company. And now that Triple H is in the swing of things, I have hope that some of the flaws I did mention in the women's division, like if you want to point out a singular flaw, the booking of the women, Becky Lynch included, it's been a problem. But you can tell there is a clear effort. There has been a clear effort coming out of WrestleMania to build women's division storylines and do some that do not involve the championships. That's so crazy important. And this stuff, even with the women's tag team titles, Chris, you know, at any point, they would have just said, you know what? Screw this. Like, we're going to stop doing angles because they keep getting hurt and let's just pull them off TV. We'll do something stupid with Ronda and Shayna. Like, at least he kept to his plan, even though I think keeping to his plan was the wrong idea. So the point is, we are in a way, way, way better spot than we were 13 months ago. And this is what we've wanted, or at least this is what I, the Silver King, have wanted going back my entire tenure as a wrestling podcaster. I've said it for a long time. Give Trips the book. He has the book. And I think it's pretty clear, Chris, that WWE is better off for it. Yes. And, and not only he did have a lot of obstacles, but he also had a very low bar, you know, and, and that bar has been raised. <laughs> Somewhat fair. It, yeah. it was, hey, give us mid card matches that matter. Give us more backstage stuff. Like he just he did the basic things that we want to give us little Easter eggs in the background of something going on, like little bits and pieces he, he gave it. So like. One year in, the bar has been raised now, and it's because of him. It was admittedly a low bar. Expectations have gone up. That's a good thing, uh, ultimately, in the end, though. I agree that it was a low bar, but let's not act like Tony Khan is over there in AEW setting the world on fire. So he had a direct comparison. Forget Vince and what he's done in the past. There is a direct comparison out there with what AEW is doing from a booking standpoint. And Triple H's booking has been better. Just apples to apples better. So forget Vince again. Yes, obviously better than Vince McMahon. Low bar with Vince. Tony Khan and AEW, I'm not saying they created a high bar, but they raised it compared to what Vince's bar was. Yeah, I mean, that is, you know, Wrestling Observer Booker of the Year, Tony Khan. Uh, you know, <laughs> Three four, time, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, do, and I do think you're also like, to not to compare the two very much, but like, there's been a downturn in approval of AEW booking. And I think that's because now we finally have good WWE booking. You know, they, they get compared to each other all of the time. Your Tony Khan did raise the bar. It needed to be raised. Triple H has raised it more. And that's ultimately a good thing for everybody. I also think to that point, Chris, that the improvement in WWE booking is allowing people to see the flaws in AEW booking that for a while they were ignoring because it was so much better than WWE for a significant period of time. But look, that's enough on Triple H, lead creative chief of 
WWE. I did want us to have that conversation. We've been putting it off for a couple of weeks due to some timing issues and, and, and getting the show together. Let's move on to this documentary, The American Nightmare Becoming Cody Rhodes. I just have a list of notes here that I wanted to go over. I'm going to try to get through them as quick as possible. At any point, if you want to say something, obviously just, just chime in. Uh, but I hope all of you have watched it by this mm-hmm. point. The documentary was obviously focused more on Cody than Dusty. I felt like they skipped over probably purposefully the way Dusty's career ended with the polka dots, like not being befitting of someone of his stature, I guess. Uh, Dustin not being part of the doc while the rest of the immediate family spoke. I thought that was an obvious miss, but I wonder, was that his decision? WWE's decision? AEW's decision? It's unfortunate to do a documentary this in-depth and not have his brother, a wrestler, speak on it. Um, There was a key moment where they talked about Cody not trying to be Dusty and rather wanting to succeed or fail on his own. And it came immediately after a clip of Charlotte Flair, which made me realize they have taken almost exact opposite paths and arguably had opposite career trajectories. Charlotte started on fire and has fallen off to a degree. Cody started extremely slow and is now on absolute fire. Both are 37, 38 years old, but Cody did start in WWE five years earlier than Charlotte. So I'm not saying one is better or worse than the other, but Charlotte has been completely, I am Ric Flair's daughter, and I'm going to look like him, I'm going to dress like him, and I'm going to do his mannerisms and all his stuff. Whereas Cody, for a long time, up until really he took the American Nightmare moniker, really didn't play off his father. And I'm sure, you know, everyone knew his name, obviously, and stuff, and they mentioned it, and yes, he had, you know, the storyline in WWE with Dustin and Dusty, but I found that to be a very interesting juxtaposition, Chris, between both of them. I feel like they don't know how to weigh the Dusty stuff. I mean, Cody comes back to WWE. The first thing he says is, my my dad didn't win this title. I want to win this title. You know, but then later in that same Roman Reigns, then when he's feuding with Roman Reigns, I don't want to talk about Dusty anymore. Uh, but he, but he half the half the documentary is about Dusty, and I was at the press conference at SummerSlam, and he's asked about Dusty and says he doesn't try to think about that anymore. So it's just, it's been very back and forth on if he's Dusty, if he's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but comparing him and Charlotte, there is an interesting way to do it because Charlotte has always been Charlotte, while Cody, I think, has always still tried to figure out how much he's a Rhodes and how much he's his own person. Yeah, especially on screen for sure. Um, and by the way, these notes are all in order of appearance in the documentary. Nearly every single design they showed of Stardust was better than the one that they used, the mini Goldust version. I thought that was funny. Um, I actually forgot about that. Uh, by the way, I, I like Stardust real quick. I liked Stardust for what it was back in the time. <laughs> I never did. I hated it. I know we've kind of, we've we've turned that into like, oh, this is the low point for Cody and all this stuff. And he hated it, obviously, but I thought he did a really good job of it. And, and and there was if if that had happened today under Triple H, there's so much they would have delved into when you think of the Bray Wyatt stuff that they just didn't sure. do with him. So yeah. ultimately it didn't work, but I, I thought he did a good job of it. You're right. They could have taken that character and made something out of it, like with storyline and, and background and using Dusty, but obviously they were not going to do that. I forgot about uh, the extremely short timeline of Dusty's death and that SummerSlam match. It was absolutely the right time to return him to Cody Rhodes and neither seeing the potential there nor being willing to do it. That is a paradigm of everything that was wrong 
with WWE creative under Vince McMahon. Like, how the fuck do you not take advantage of that? Not just because you would have wanted to do it, but Cody was begging for it. And he had he gave you his blessing. Let me be Cody Rhodes again. I want to represent my father. He would have blown up if they took advantage of that. And of course, they didn't. Uh, I found it ironic that Cody's first match outside of WWE was with Evolve, which had a relationship with WWE. I never realized that. Apparently, mm -hmm. this was somewhat known. I didn't realize it. New Japan came up with the American Nightmare moniker. I didn't realize that was the case. I thought it was something he yeah. gestated, but just debuted when he went over there. Definitely something that I want to dive into with him whenever we get the chance to interview Cody. I want to know how he actually got the name from them. I'm sure it wasn't that big of a deal. How long it took for him to buy into it and feel comfortable with it. All that type of stuff. I always assumed that came from him. And it's crazy that it didn't. And it's crazy that no one ever thought about that for him, given his father was the American dream. That's nuts. Yeah, uh, I also didn't. I also didn't know. I should have known, but I didn't know he dyed his hair blonde for Dusty. You know, like he. he oh, yeah. As he was. Yeah. Off doing his own thing. I, it made total sense in the world. I watched all the BTE. I just I never put it together. Mm -hmm. It looked it, it does. It, it is weird looking back at his dark hair. He does look like a bigger kind of persona with the blonde. For sure. No question. Uh, we knew coming in that there would be footage of all in from the Young Bucks, the Jacksons. What I found interesting is Bullet Club was not uttered at all, even though it's basically kind of kayfabe in WWE. And they also skipped over their success as a group prior to All In. It jumped from Cody being huge on the independents to All In without any of the build over a really long period of time that directly led to that. Now, it made it seem like it all happened inside of like 18 months or maybe two years, but it was actually six years combined between independents, New Japan, and AEW. I don't think they were burying the history so much as they were moving the story along because it was already a two hour documentary. But the depth of that part of the story to me was important. Now, all that said, they did give a lot of respect to All In. They named AEW and they went into detail about the company starting. They had pictures and video of it. I was not surprised that they didn't get into a situation with AEW and the fan support and not being able to go after the world title. But again, all of that is relevant to the story. If we were doing this as an independent documentary, we would have mentioned all of that stuff. I, I, that was my biggest question coming into this was how much AEW, the elite type of stuff, is there going to be? And based on WWE's history, I thought there'd be nothing. There was a lot more than I, I thought. I know you said it kind of went through it quickly. Mm -hmm. Kind of did. But it's still a lot more than we thought. We got being the elite in a WWE documentary. You know, like the Jacksons were there, the <laughs> right. Bucks were there. They, they, they said the names of everything. Um, so I, I'm glad they did that because, like I said, during the Cody-Roman feud, like this is the most interesting part of his story. The fact that he quit, created his own company, and then came back. That's never happened before. Yeah, it, 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 It's huge. And so I thought they did do a good job of emphasizing how big of a deal that was, mm -hmm. um, but you are right. Like that's the period, that's the period I got into BTE kind of leading into all in and all that stuff and, and, and seeing all of that. So it, it could they've done more? Yeah, sure. I, I, but I was thoroughly surprised and, and encouraged by how much they did have. I, the one quote that he had, I left AEW because of a personal issue. That's it. Obviously he wasn't going to say more kind of wish he did. 
Uh, Cody actually got choked up and he cried when saying WWE is his home. I found that a little bit surprising. Uh, Matt Cardona, who was extremely close with Cody, he was all over the dock. I found it funny that he was referred to by that name and not Zack Ryder. But it also kind of felt inevitable while I was watching it that eventually this guy is going to be back in WWE one day. And it's going to be curious to see if that happens and what form it takes. Uh, It was really cool. I think one of the best moments of the entire doc was Triple H telling Cody, quote, I'm so fucking proud of you in gorilla position after WrestleMania. Like That had to mean something to him, I'm sure. And then the last scene of him carrying the 70s era WWF title. You cannot tell me the plan is not for this guy to beat Roman Reigns at WrestleMania 40 when you're ending the documentary like that. One, Cody saying, I I didn't know if I'd be cheered when I returned. That's a total... I don't know, he, man. He's he's just working you there. He was gonna. He everybody. Look, I was at that WrestleMania. They're selling dusty road shirts. Everybody's chanting Cody, Cody, Cody throughout throughout the concourse and stuff like that. Like we knew he was coming. I, okay, wait, wait, wait hold on. I agree. Star. I agree that it's kind of ridiculous to think he a big surprise return at WrestleMania that had pretty much leaked and everyone knew was going to be Cody that he would not get cheered. I agree with that in theory. However, the context of him saying that was. I'm coming from another company and he's still thinking about, you know, WWE hating AEW and him being in his mind, someone who started this rival company and went after WWE and it's a loyal following that WWE has. So even though I I do largely agree with you that if you're in his position, you know that everyone's going to cheer their, their, you know, vocal cords out for you. I can understand there being a shred of doubt in your mind based on some of those things. Is that fair? They didn't, they, they, so when he enters though, there's, they don't tell you who it's going to be. They, they, they start playing his music, says American Nightmare. It doesn't even say Cody Rhodes when his name comes up. It just says American Nightmare. He's about all the way down the stage before Corey Graves starts saying something on commentary. Like they told you this, they, they didn't have to tell you this is Cody Rhodes. You just knew it was Cody Rhodes. So like they knew this was right. going to be a big thing. And the very next day he's like i'm going for the title like you don't do that if you don't think it's going to work so that was just that was just a, a little thing a couple other things I, I noted um you know remember when, when cody did come back he was saying wrestling and stuff like that mm-hmm. but in this documentary he refers to the sports entertainment mount rushmore <laughs> you can kind of see that that wwe language sure. kind of come back well him, vince uh, vince mcmahon was the lead executive producer on this documentary let's be clear sure yeah sure well he said in interviews and stuff too but also Daniel Cormier is in this and they, they list him like under his name. They mm-hmm. referred to him as sports personality. And I was like, that's man, weird. that's doing, that's doing Daniel yeah. Cormier. UFC heavyweight now. champion. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, the, the um, uh, Cody Rhodes's contract part, that whole saga, they, it was broken by fightful at the time, but in the documentary, they use a, a image of bleacher report aggregating i know fightful without crediting and i, I saw a little, little thing i just little media people we noticed that stuff like yeah. that um but uh yeah in, in terms of the um personal issue i'm very curious i know there's rumors about various things I, he went as far as he would go without saying specifically what it was he said it wasn't money did he say like i think it wasn't money it wasn't championships or something like that it was a personal issue so that just only kind of amps up the curiosity about it. Um, so that was an interesting part too. 
all good stuff there. Anything else before we wrap this up with Cody and move on? It, it was kind of weird when they talk about losing to Roman and stuff like that. That's kind of the end of the documentary. Um, how you treat that as like a real thing that happened versus it just being booking, you know, they, they really kind of blurred the lines there. Mm -hmm. But maybe the best part of the, the best shot of the documentary is, is, at, is at the end when Cody Rhodes loses and you see a shot of Brandy Rhodes looking really, really sad mm -hmm. and like in the same frame, you see Samantha Irvin saying, and still <laughs> unbelievable shot who, whatever camera person got that shot, give that person a race. Unbelievable shot for that moment. That, that shot right there, use that shot in the WrestleMania 40 hype video package for Cody Roman. Assuming we do that again, unbelievable shot. I missed that. I'm going to have to go back and see that for sure. Now, we still have the main event, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the last word upcoming. Like I said, it is a loaded show. Before we get to that, a couple WWE headlines we need to hit. First, commentary changes. Now, I was able to discuss this on last week's show, but Chris, let's get you in here. Uh, Michael Cole and Wade Barrett, I think they've completely upped the ante on Raw, but I was absolutely floored Friday night when they turn over the camera to the commentary table right at the start of the show, by the way. And you have Corey Graves on the left, Kevin Patrick in the middle as the lead play-by-play -play man over Michael Cole on the right. I was legitimately shocked. It was noticeable for me that there was a significant drop in excitement on commentary during SmackDown. And I just stand on this leg. I don't understand why WWE is forcing a square peg in a round hole here. It doesn't work with Kevin Patrick. I don't think Michael Cole should have to do double duty, but I also don't think Kevin Patrick should be lead commentary on any show. Yeah, look, Cole, speaking of the Triple H era, I mean, Cole was already on the upswing with Pat McAfee and everything, but he has been even better over yeah, the last year. True. Like, I love Michael Cole now. Terrific. I want him calling everything. Like, that's a credit to everybody involved in that as well. And and Cole and Barrett on Raw makes Raw more enjoyable. That's the longer show. I like it. But yeah, man, just... Again, we like Kevin Patrick. He does a lot of good things. Just wrestling play-by-play -play is a different thing. And, and and I just keep thinking back to when they let Jimmy Smith go. And just how, like, he he wasn't extraordinary, but he he hit everything you wanted. Mm -hmm. He wasn't, like, amazing at anything, but he was he was solid at everything. And we just, we don't have that on Forget, half the show. You know what? Forget Jimmy Smith. An issue. Forget Jimmy Smith. How about when they let Todd Phillips go? For no reason whatsoever. Tom Phillips, not Tom Todd Phillips. Yeah. Tom yeah. Phillips go for no reason whatsoever. And how about when they brought up Vic Joseph, which we were excited about, and they paired him with Jerry the King Lawler. Like, what was that, two years ago? It was mind-numbing that they did this. So, like, you have guys, anyone who watches NXT on Tuesday, you may not love Booker T. I do, but you may not. Vic Joseph and Booker T are entertaining as hell. And you could put Vic Joseph on lead commentary for SmackDown or Raw with a competent color commentary person. Maybe you do like Booker T for comedic reasons and Corey Graves or whomever. And it would be great. And for some reason, they're forcing Kevin Patrick down our throats. And again, like the guy, seems to be a good, good dude, seems to be talented, doesn't fit as play-by-play -play man. I also want to talk about Asuka's Weekend War. Um, if you guys like my rants on this show, you better go read the one that Asuka dropped on Twitter this weekend. The entire thing is incredible. Let me give you the background. I'm going to distill it in as few words as I can. So five years into her career in Japan, Asuka sent like 
a Jerry Maguire style manifesto to a wrestling magazine. She tore apart the Joshi scene. That's Japanese women's wrestling. She went off about, you know, promoters prioritizing looks over skill, taking models, making them into wrestlers. Does that sound familiar? Maybe. Uh, Shady backstage practices. Many believe it was a work shoot as part of a heel turn for her, but it actually made her a pariah with the promoters and some of her fellow wrestlers. Well, guess what? It also made her a massive fan favorite in Japan and America. And she went on to have a stellar freelance career over in Japan. It went so far that some, including Oscar herself, believe that stardom was initially created back then because of her comments. And then, of course, she left for WWE and had massive success. So this weekend, Chris, Asuka tweets a picture. I swear, this is real what I'm telling you, okay? She tweets a picture of a piece of pizza that had pineapple on it. That sounds totally innocuous, right? A fan tweets at her something that was a joke. Like, look, I can't really be your fan anymore because you eat pineapple on pizza. And she just loses it, okay? Presumably not understanding that it's like a common America joke that pineapple on pizza is bad. But she goes on to rip the Japanese media and how they hated her because she wouldn't flirt back with them and play their game. She talked about stardom being created to destroy her personally. She said she loves America and she has comrades in arms with Charlotte, Becky, and Triple H, and that WWE in America is an oasis for her. I just found this entire thing awesome. I know this doesn't fit into what we normally talk about on the show, but it's like as if I didn't like her enough already, she goes ahead and does this and makes me like an even bigger fan. Just consider how confident and badass you need to be to say this line. They created an organization to defeat me. It was created to destroy me personally, but they failed to defeat me. I don't know what happened to them after that. How do you like that, huh? I like it a lot. And it also reminded me, Chris, this is really why I brought it up. We have problems with Asuka's main roster booking. On occasion, we have her entire career. She is legitimately one of the most decorated women in WWE history. Four-time WWE Women's Champion, NXT Champion, three-time Tag Team Champion, Money in the Bank, Royal Rumble, Mixed Match Challenge winner, ended Bianca Belair's longest modern title reign, second woman to win the Grand Slam, third woman, Triple Crown. The only thing she is missing is a WrestleMania victory. If ballots existed in the WWE Hall of Fame, she's a first ballot Hall of Famer just for what she's done in America. She's incredible. The run's incredible. I loved this. Yeah, I, I caught a couple of the tweets and I didn't know the context at all. So I had found some stories that kind of explained everything. So uh, good good for her, man, to, to speak up about this stuff and, and what she went through and the way just the scene is over there. I, I think sometimes here in America, we just we, we, we glorify the Japanese wrestling scene just because it's good wrestling. But mm-hmm. like, there's just a lot of other stuff that goes on with all companies, with all industries. So that was uh, insightful. I'm, I'm glad she feels she has support here and fans here and and is is thriving. And like like we said, she is a first ballot Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. And it, it's been it's been very cool and glad um, glad she has that support system. And I should note that stardom, it has changed since this happened. She hasn't been over there in a long time. It's now owned by Bushi Road, which owns New Japan. So things are different. But still, it was great to just see her go on a random rant, by the way, in perfect English too. like, you know, it was like there was no translation yeah, problems. Yeah. I, I read the whole thing. I'm like, did someone write this for her? Like, it's perfect English. So I just popped so hard to see this. You know, it's one of those things where like you're sitting on the couch and you're like scrolling Twitter. You're like, wait, Oscar's ranting on something. She's saying Triple H is a comrade. OK, I got to read this entire thing. I got to see what's going on. Uh, the other big headline I want to discuss is Bray Wyatt, 
who is progressing, apparently. We spent last week on the podcast discussing the health of Biggie, Vince McMahon, and Sonya Deville. Those of you who are official getting overheads, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, by the way, have seen us writing about Wyatt on and off for months. Fightful, late last week, reported much of what we have previously. There are plans in place for him to return. The medical issue was legitimately serious, and his disappearance from TV had nothing to do with creative. All things that we've told you previously. Fightful, though, reports that the health issue put his career and life at risk, and there are hopes that are higher than ever before that he's going to be back sooner than later. I can't confirm that, but it does track with what we were reporting previously. Now, on that note, Jackson, one of our longtime listeners, he wrote in saying, big fan of the show. Do you think Bray will return at Payback or Fastlane? Do you think the skulls they keep showing are clues to his return, just like the QR codes were before? This is such a weird thing for me because these skulls have been pointed out to me. I've seen screen caps and stuff the last like few weeks. I didn't notice them at all on my own, despite being, I think, very perceptive when they were doing the QR codes and the Firefly Funhouse stuff the last time he returned. I've missed all these skulls. Now, there would be no reason to do a hidden item gimmick unless it was for Bray. They're certainly not doing it for Karrion Cross, but I can't predict when he's coming back. I just hope that he does, and I hope that he's healthy. And when he comes back, I hope the booking makes sense. Yeah, I, I was unaware of most of that. I, I don't know the skulls. More than anything, just hope his health is okay. You know, just before wrestling, before any of that, just hope everything's okay. You know, like we said, there were other things going on. And if he comes back, great. Looking forward to it. I've always been a big fan of him. I think he's a very, very unique physical wrestler. We always talk about the lore and the spookiness with him, but I think he's really, really good in the ring and, and stuff like that. So um, positive. That's good. Looking forward to it. All right. So let's finally get to WWE television this week. I think the best way to describe it, at least for me, Chris, was uneventful. Like it was the most wheel spinning five hours that I can remember, which I just found to be disappointing coming off of last week's outstanding Raw. The SmackDown main event, I think, was probably the best part of both shows. The main attraction of Raw, Becky Lynch versus Trish Stratus, ended up not being the most important part of Raw for good reason. We'll get to that later, but still. So all in all, I just did not find it to be a banner week. And a little spoiler alert, I think by the time we get to the good, the bad, and the ugly, it might be the most bads we've had in a single week since Triple H got the book. And I'm going to give you a second spoiler, not for the segments you think. Well, look, there's a reason we spent the first half of this podcast doing Triple H and Cody Rhodes, uh, because not as not as much to get into with what happened on the shows. They felt like filler, not fillers, but they felt like we're heading toward a B-level pay-per-view. And it's been a while since we had that. So it's it, bound to happen. it felt like we're heading towards the first of two B-level pay-per-views. Oh, and football season is starting. You know, again, Raw was great, though, last week. So maybe we'll have a rebound this coming Friday. And Monday, with that said, Chris, let's kick off our breakdown of the week in WWE, as we always do, by sliding into the main event. This is the main event. And we do have a co-main event this week, but let's start with the Hail to the Chief segment Friday night on SmackDown with Roman Reigns. Of course, that main event of the show. Paul Heyman didn't know where Jimmy Uso was when Roman asked him. Jimmy slipped in from the crowd to You Sold Out Chance. Doesn't really make sense because he didn't sell out. No one paid him. You know, uh, Roman admitted he owes Jimmy, saying he can name his price, a car, a yacht, whatever. Jimmy said he wants nothing because turning on Jay had nothing to do with Roman. 
Reigns offered to make him the right-hand man, main event Jimmy Uso, whatever he wanted. But Jay entered. He was infuriated. Jimmy said, look, man, I did it because I love you, Jay. Not because I'm jealous of you, but because I was afraid to lose you to becoming tribal chief with power corrupting you and you becoming an egotistical, manipulative, lying asshole, just like Roman. Jimmy said it was worth completely risking their 37-year relationship to prevent that from happening. And then he put his hands out so that Jay could just strike him without penalty. Instead, Jay completely turned his back to him. Jimmy left. Reigns laughed, calling Jay a stupid hothead and demanded, acknowledge me. So Jay super kicked his head off. Solo Sokoa attacked Jay. He ate a super kick. Roman then hit a Superman punch, but Jay countered the spear with a super kick and then he speared Reigns. Then he goes outside the ring on the ramp. He calls Jimmy in for a hug. He opens his arms. Jimmy finally says, you know what? Okay, I'm gonna hug my brother. Starts walking down to the ramp only for Jay to super kick his fucking head off as well. (laughs) Jay then told the camera, I'm out of the bloodline, out of SmackDown and out of WWE. Deuces, ooses. I love that line. Before walking off through the crowd, this while the crowd was going absolutely wild for him, chanting his name. Jay walked all the way up the stairs through the vom. The camera lights lingered on him and then they kind of went down a little bit as he walked off. You could not have asked for better production in this moment. So look, this was certainly not the smoothest segment, but damn it if I am not intrigued largely about where the hell this goes from here, Chris. Starting with the segment though, okay? The biggest issue is that Jimmy is, and let's be honest here, like one eighth the actor that Jay is. His promo Jimmy's was all over the place. The explanation though, it made complete sense and it delivered exactly what I hoped. Jimmy turning on Jay for sensible reasons, all without going back to the bloodline. That was the heavy criticism that people had coming in. Oh, it makes no sense that he's coming back to the bloodline. I said, look, SmackDown, not SmackDown, SummerSlam, you may not have liked it, but as long as he doesn't go back to the bloodline and as long as he explains himself in a manner such as this, it would make sense. That's what Jimmy did. Thank you. Now, the delivery lacked and that made following his train of thought a struggle. But Jay and Roman, I thought, completely saved it. And the fake hug into the super kick on the ramp, plus everything he did after that was perfectly executed. There are two key elements here that I think some might have missed. First, Jimmy was basically rationalizing his insecurity of seeing Jay succeed where he could not. He tried to hide that insecurity by claiming he didn't want Jay to turn into Roman. But the truth at the base of it is that he didn't want to see Jay pull away from him and succeed on his own when they've spent the past 37 years doing it together. That's really smart character building and storytelling. Good layering. Especially since Jay, this time, finally saw through the charade after years of gaslighting that he's already suffered from Reigns. He's going to take it from Roman, or he did. He's not going to take it from his brother. And then second, Jay got his last licks in on Roman, which means that Reigns may be pursuing someone to get revenge on them, what, for the first time in this entire run? Otherwise, his most recent appearance, Romans, is being embarrassed by his cousin. I thought the logic was sound. The segment delivered overall. It was a huge bounce back from a SummerSlam main event that let a lot to be desired, both from a wrestling standpoint and a storytelling standpoint. Plus, Jay came out of this segment, Chris, looking like an absolute killer. He took down his two brothers and Roman all on his own. 
he might actually be more over than ever before, which I never would have guessed coming into SmackDown on Friday night. You explained all of that, I think, a lot better than it was explained in the in the promo. Jimmy saying you're turning into him, you're turning into to Roman. I didn't understand that. We hadn't seen that there. There were no bits and pieces left where eh, Jay might be going a little bit too far here, getting a little out of ahead of his skis. We didn't have that. But when Jimmy says, kind of, I'm worried about losing you. What about us as a tag team? What about the Usos? That's the that's the thing to lean into. And yeah, he he could have sold that a little bit better. But that is the story. That makes sense. It didn't make sense to rejoin the bloodline, all that kind of stuff. And at the beginning of this, Roman and Jimmy, when Roman says, hey, I owe you one. What do you want? I thought that was great. I thought Roman did a great job of delivering that, showing us, hey, they're not together. We don't. Roman doesn't know what's going on either, you know, and he says, hey, I owe you one. Like, I like how he admitted that. And Jay looks like a star at the end of all of this. Like you said, probably as over as he's going to be him quitting. It's intriguing. I, I don't know. Like, you're, you're right. After three years of being gaslighting, three years of breaking away from Roman, trying to break away from these people that are trying to hold him back, he's just like, I'm totally out of this now. I, I'm out of wrestling. I'm out of, I'm out. I'm going to do my own thing. It's intriguing. I have no idea what happens next. I assume we're getting to a Jimmy J feud at some point here. They need to lean into it a little bit better. Uh, but I came out out of this being like, I have no idea what's going to happen next. And that's a good place to be. Well, what a great segue, because what I was just going to say is what I now wonder is what the hell they do now? <laughs> Where the hell do they go from here? The Usos are fully out of the bloodline, right? That's a positive. Sokoa, though, is not at any further odds with Reigns. They did tease that multiple times over the last couple of months, but it hasn't come to a head. Jay just quit the entire company. Jimmy is basically in purgatory between all of it because without Jay, there's no storyline that matters with Jimmy. He's not joining the bloodline and he's not going to start a feud with anyone else. Meanwhile, Roman is seemingly about to take his vacation. It sure feels to me like we're about to get like a month long break from the entire bloodline. When I say that, I mean not seeing them on TV. Now, maybe like Paul Heyman shows up and gets into arguments with Adam Pierce about Reigns and the title not being there or whatever the case. But it sure seems like they're just about to take that storyline off of TV for multiple weeks now. And if that's not the case, then there are a couple plausible scenarios that I kind of worked out that might feature Jay. One is that Triple H convinces Jay to work on Raw the same way he convinced Rey Mysterio to work SmackDown when he was at odds with Dominic. That could play. The other, though, mm -hmm. would be WWE doing what they should have done with CM Punk years ago. Yes. And that is actually <laughs> letting Jay work somewhere else, like Impact. Now, obviously that's unlikely to happen, okay? It does not benefit WWE one iota for Jay to go work anywhere. And if it did, it would be like uh, Booker T's reality of wrestling, which doesn't have a TV deal. You're not gonna see it anywhere. Maybe they could give him to like well, they, they have they have local TV. They got local TV in Houston. That would almost be fun. Like he's only on local TV in Houston and like they pull the clip or something. But the like point. That. Right. Like sure. Viral or something like OK. Yes. If you wanted to do just like a singularly viral clip, then like, yeah, you could do that. Or they could say, hey, MLW, you know, 
I know you're suing us, but if you want to like, uh, if, if you want to, yeah, I don't think that's gonna. Happen. If you want to get a little, you know, better on the back end, we'll give you Jay for for a month, and you can use him, and and you know, drop this whole lawsuit. They won't do that, but I'm just saying. But look, it would be cool as shit if they did that. It's just I don't think they're going to, and it's going to be extremely interesting to see how the hell they book all of this going forward in a way that continues to make sense, not just in storyline, but in terms of the SmackDown product and keeping interest on the show. Because you really just cannot pull that entire storyline off of SmackDown and expect people to say, oh yeah, I'm going to keep tuning in every single week, knowing they're not going to be there. It's one thing if they're not on the show, it's another if you know they're not going to be on the show. So I'm very curious to see what's going to happen. And I'm curious to see what you think about some of those points I made, including Jay going to Raw. I love the idea of late summer of Jay, you know, or, or something like that. Uh, I remember when CM Punk, you know, when, when he had his whole thing, he showed up at Comic-Con, I think. And when there was a WWE panel, like they, you could do some stuff like that to, to really have some fun with it. Other than that, like I thought he was just going to go to raw when he said, I'm, I'm out of the bloodline, I'm out of SmackDown. I'm like, Oh, he's just going to go to raw. They said, I quit WWE. The headline they put on the WWE YouTube page is, Jey Uso quits WWE exclamation point. Like, yeah. so I don't think he's just going to show up on Raw. So I, I I don't know. I would love, I I don't know. It, it could go anywhere. There, there There's a lot of out of the arena things you could do. Maybe Jay's filming himself or, or maybe something else is going on. I, I don't know. But you're, you know, I was just thinking like, if this is the end of the Bloodline story, it's not a terrible way to end it. You know, like it ends on a high note. We go our separate ways. The bloodline itself is done. Roman does his thing. Like, I don't know, or at least take a pause for a month or two and come back to it in a bit. I don't think that's a, a bad thing. But ultimately, and I said this on the SmackDown Instant Reaction Pod, if you don't have that, what do you have on SmackDown? I think you have the, the face of SmackDown becoming like LA Knight or something. Well, LA Knight and Rey Mysterio. So I, and... I don't know. LA Knight, yeah. Rey Mysterio, and EO Sky. I mean, I love EO. She's not a face of the company type person yet. That's one of those. It's like when they took Gunther off the show with the Intercontinental title, when he was on there previously and Reigns wasn't there, it still felt like there was this huge presence on the show because you had him and Imperium. But yeah, you take the bloodline off that show. Like, and think about all the talent that is on Raw. Like, and forget like Seth Rollins and Judgment Day and, you know, Drew McIntyre and, and so on and so forth. But who's left on on SmackDown? Not that many people. It's really a thin show. And we talked about that, that the men's singles division over there was thin coming out of the draft. You do have Bobby Lashley that just came back. But who is he going after? (laughs) You know, the the main title is not there. So it's like, what are you doing? I don't know. Yeah, it's it's interesting. But look, look, after we were we were discouraged a bit after SummerSlam, gave it a B plus. But it was like, man, not for the main event times. They've really dropped the ball. No one of the few times they dropped the ball here uh, with, with how they did the Roman stuff, but they came back and they had a really good episode of SmackDown. So it comes back to where whatever they're doing, we trust them to get the next thing, right? Yeah. Mo- I, we'll see what that is. Most important was coming out of SummerSlam. We said, if the explanation is this, this, and this, then it's okay. And it was, so they, they delivered exactly what the hope was coming out of SummerSlam, saved it the best they could. I don't say well, saved it because they booked it. They planned to do that. But but with yeah. Jimmy explaining, hey, look, I'm not I didn't do this for Roman. I'm not rejoining the bloodline. I did this purely for you. And it's a brother versus brother feud and not um, Jimmy just turning on him for no reason whatsoever. It made a lot of sense the way they explained it on Friday. 
that doesn't make the the match was still boring. Oh yeah, doesn't of course. That. But in terms no. of the, but in terms of the finish, you can stomach it a little bit better now. And that's what I said on the SummerSlam second look. If you take Solo Sokoa's interference out of that match, and you just have Jay look awesome the entire match and do the same finish with Jimmy, then it's more palatable in the moment, and this would have played even better on Friday. Instead, the fact that Solo interfered for 15 minutes was utterly ridiculous. And then you got Jimmy on top of it, and it just it was like digging extra dirt and throwing it on the shovel, on the uh, on the grave of what was not a good main event segment. Speaking of main event segments, let's move to the second part of this main event. Judgment Day opened Raw on Monday with Rhea Ripley admitting things have not gone their way recently. Damian Priest said Finn Balor should have won the World Heavyweight Championship, no shit, at SummerSlam, and that Judgment Day was solid as a group. There were not major problems. He promised Balor would handle Cody Rhodes in their match, but was vocally angry that Balor was not out there with them to start the show. So J.D. McDonough entered with a message from Balor. Priest warned him. McDonough basically said, don't worry about anything except Cody and Sami Zayn for the rest of the show. Dominic Mysterio got his ass booed. Ripley cut JD off saying they needed to talk to Balor. Then Zayn entered to a huge pop, Sammy. He beat on McDonough with Judgment Day not saving him. McDonough eventually put Sammy's elbow twice into the ring post. It was not as hot and open as it could have been or should have been, though I did pop when Ripley said, oh God, as soon as Sammy's music hit. I thought that was really funny. Everything started well with Priest kind of like breaking character to bitch about Balor. But McDonough came out and slowed the entire segment down with a really boring couple of lines. And while we saw him last week and like one time a couple months ago with Balor, the crowd is not yet conditioned to care about him when they see him on screen like they would have been if they had been telling the stories consistently over the last month. So again, it was a fine open to Raw, but it could have been hotter. Well, going back to Triple H stuff again, it's like, well, J.D. McDonough's back, Triple H guy. Some of these people who pop in and out, you're just like, oh, this is a Triple H week. It kind of feels like sometimes. But now they're starting to actually do a story. And I like that J.D. McDonough came out, kind of tried to play the nice guy. And they're just like, dude, no, you're not in the Judgment Day. We're not having this conversation right. with you. Like, I, I liked that in terms of setting the dynamics between them. It was a bit meandering what he said he was also dressed like he was about to have a match and then sammy comes out it's just it's also tough because the tag team both tag team championships are just in dead water right now because sammy's kayfabe hurt kevin owens is real hurt we have no idea what's going on with them so like sammy's and sammy's been feuding with the judgment day for like months and it's like what is the end game here it's just another week of sammy and the judgment day and they'll do a match and nothing will mean anything so it was like an okay segment for what it was, but I think the larger picture of what exactly is going on between these groups is just not, there's not a lot of juice there. Just to clarify what you said, Sammy and KO are both simultaneously real hurt and kayfabe hurt. So Owens has the, a legitimate rib injury, but he could work with it, but he's not, he's getting rest. So they wrote him off. So that's the kayfabe part. Sammy does legitimately have bursitis in his elbow. He has tennis elbow. You can see it on screen. He's clearly able to work with it, though. So they're selling the kayfabe aspect of it being a hindrance for him. But at the same time, he's still working. He hasn't missed a show. So I thought he was going to miss a show after last week. He didn't. Anyway, this led to Zayn against McDonough in a match. Commentary sold both Sammy's elbow injury that I just mentioned. And Michael Cole, for the first time, said that JD was auditioning for a role in Judgment Day 
That had not been explicitly stated, even though we kind of assumed that was the case. McDonough worked the elbow all match. Zayn hit a one-arm Michinoku driver. JD came back with a standing Spanish fly into a crossface. Balor then came out and distracted after Sammy hit an exploder suplex before a Huluva kick. Zayn got double boots up, though, on a high-risk move and hit Huluva kick for the one, two, three. Now, you can argue that JD could have or maybe should have gone over Sammy because Finn was out there for interference. But Zayn is a big baby face right now, and they were in Canada. So, you know, look, if Vince McMahon had the book, you'd bet your ass he would have lost that match. But here, Triple H, smarter than that. I thought it was solid enough to establish McDonough as a legitimate threat in the ring, but Balor looked utterly useless here. Like, he can do absolutely nothing right. He comes out, it's two-on-one interference, and Zayn still wins somehow. At least Balor coming out after not appearing in the opening segment moved the storyline forward. I just thought he looked like an idiot, though. Yeah, I'd also like them to kind of go back and explain the J.D. McDonough-Finn Balor friendship if this is really going to be the thing now. I know they said it a couple times. It was a few weeks back when something happened. But, like, this, you know, this a week out of SummerSlam coming back is a time to kind of refresh Mm -hmm. who he is and why we should care about him. And that's lacking. And that plays into my enjoyment of the match as well because I know of him. I didn't watch him much in NXT. He's just an Irish guy who I guess is friends with Finn Balor. So if you can just kind of give us some character backstory to that and why they're close friends, that'll like, that's the story they're telling. Like, so tell us Finn yeah. and JD going back when JD was young. I don't know what the real life story is. They're literally Chris. Uh, they're literally from the same small town in Ireland, which is wild. And Finn trained him. Boom. So, so yes, there, there needs boom. to be like either a sit down with both of them or JD just, doing an interview or a vignette explaining his background and how Finn helped me this and why I like Balor so much. And even if it's one-sided, having that before this happened or as this is happening, it would have, you're right, given us as an audience who don't know any of those things, context into why this guy's important, why Balor trusts him so much, and why that's a problem for the rest of Judgment. Exactly, exactly that. Yeah. So Cody backstage put over Judgment Day. He took a shot at Dom and said, He's ready for Balor. Balor and Priest then got into it backstage with Ripley setting them straight. She said, they're now the most dominant faction in WWE, but no one is scared of them and they are losing their killer instinct. McDonough came up, that pissed off Priest, so Balor sent him off, rallied the troops and said, let's handle business tonight. And somewhat surprisingly, they all got on board. So that led to the main event. Rhodes against Balor. Uh, Dom and Rhea came out really early to distract. Rhodes hit a disaster kick before Priest came out. Cody dodged coup de gras and hit a Cody cutter. Priest tripped Rhodes and Cody hit a double tope suicida on him and Balor. Ripley then distracted as Dom tripped Cody on the rope, on the top rope, I should say. And then Finn came up and hit a superplex. Cody looked like he landed really badly on his shoulder, but he continued and didn't seem to be in pain. The referee caught Dom sliding in a steel chair. Priest then sent the briefcase to Finn, but it slid under his legs, kind of like Bill Buckner style. Rhodes used it on him and then hit crossroads and got the win. Judgment Day attacked and Zayn saved the attack with a chair until McDonough came down and took him out and basically left him open for a beating. He he took him down and said, okay, Judgment Day, go do your thing. Priest hit Rhodes with South of Heaven. Balor added coup de gras. Then he hit one off the steps onto Sammy at ringside before Balor fed Zayn to Priest for razor's edge through the announce table. Balor then just for good measure hit Rhodes with a second coup de gras to end Raw. Uh, McDonough didn't celebrate with them. He paced 
ringside looking through the ropes as the rest of Judgment Day celebrated in the ring. So the match and its booking, I thought left a lot to be desired, especially with Finn. He, again, he looks like an absolute joke eating a third straight loss. And again, with the briefcase, like I know they said, hey, the briefcase is coming between you guys. They meant it literally because this briefcase, every single time they try to do something with it, it's fucking with him. That said, the post-match I thought was exceedingly well done. And it was a great heel heat moment for a faction. It also paid off the entire show long storyline of Judgment Day attempting to reestablish its own dominance and come together as a group. That happened. And McDonough played a role in that happening. So now we say, okay, do they recognize that? And does he potentially join Judgment Day next week or in a couple weeks? Admittedly, Chris, before the post-match, I was going to say this kind of failed to deliver a strong payoff given it was three hours of story. But they made it work. I thought really smart booking at the end. Ultimately, I was pleased with it. I will say I'm not really looking forward to another Cody and Sammy versus Judgment Day match, which we're definitely going to get next week. There needs to be something to freshen this up. And we're way too far from Survivor Series for for us to say, okay, you know what? Survivor Series is six weeks away. They're telling a long-term story. The baby faces are going to just add people and add people, and they're going to have a five-on-five match. No, that shit's three months away. They ain't doing that. Uh, KO, Kevin Owens, returning next week in Quebec City, 2.5 hours from Montreal. That makes a lot of sense. Maybe they build to a tag team title match against Sammy and uh, KO against Judgment Day for payback. But again, we've already seen that match on Raw. So, It just feels like a lot of wheels spinning in place. But despite all of that, I really did like the post-match and the final segment that we got on Raw Monday night. Thinking about that, I love the idea of Finn and JD taking the tag titles away from Kevin and Sammy. That would be interesting. Because then everybody in Judgment Day has something. A fifth person has something. You get the titles off of Kevin and Sammy. That'd be a really fun thing to do. Hope they do that. I, I liked the finish to the match. I know it was doing the briefcase a third time, but like that was the point because when that briefcase was under him and Cody grabs it, everybody pauses and goes, oh, <laughs> like everybody knew what it meant. Cody's he face sold it well. Face, the crowd reacted. Yeah, it was good. Everybody sold it well and they knew, oh my God, it happened again. And boom, he hits him. Interestingly, when EO cashed in, she hit, um, I think it was Bianca in the face with the money in the bank. One, two, three pin on the social media clips of it. They take out the headshot. They do the jump. Cut. Mm. Um, here, Cody hits him in the head again. And on the social media, they do another jump cut. So they're doing headshots with a briefcase on TV and did another one, but not doing it on social media. Just a little interesting thing I, I, I found. Um, I've caught twice now, but I enjoyed the, the main events. I liked that it wasn't a, another tag team match. Finn versus Cody feels like a WrestleMania type of match. And, and so, I know. so that was good. Enjoyed the post-match. I was really worried coming into the beginning. Like, again, this was a Raw. that happens a lot under Triple H. You start the episode with a conflict or with a, a situation. Judgment Day isn't on the same page. They're not feared. How do we end the show? Judgment Day on the same page being feared. Mm-hmm. I mean, not totally on the same page because they lost the match. No, but, but in, the, but the in that final moment, they are feared. in the final moment, the four of them were on the same page. Yeah, he lost the match again. Yeah. And that's Balor. And clearly, by the way, like we hate the fact that Balor keeps losing. 
it's clearly purposeful, okay? They're telling a story with it. Hey, I'm sacrificing for us as a group, but it's coming at at my expense. I'm losing everything. You know, I had all these title matches. You guys didn't really support me the way that we agreed to. Um, So they're clearly telling the story. It's not the story I wanted them to tell. And I don't think it's the story you wanted them to tell or a lot of fans did, but there is purpose behind what they are doing. He's not losing just to lose. Yeah, so ultimately, I like this whole thing. It was I wasn't sure about it at the start, but by the end, as you saw how it played out throughout the, the episode, really liked it. Yeah. And that's exactly what you want on a three-hour Raw. Although, by the way, I will say, if he does fight Cody Rhodes at Payback, he's going to lose again. So that'll be, that would be four major losses in a row, but we'll worry about that, that when the time comes. Give him the tag belts, like I'm saying. Yeah, definitely an option. No question about it. All right, Chris, that was the main event. Let's keep it going with our next segment, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm sorry, Miss Rosie Perez. I call a spade a spade. It just is what it is. But you can't give credit to anything dude says. Same dude to give you ice and you own some. Shorty. It's time to wake up the dead. You sound a little naive in them articles that I read. By the way, on last week's show, I don't know if you heard it, Chris, but I asked the audience, I asked the Getting Overheads, our listeners, hey, do you guys rap along to this? And like, do you know the words now from the show? And I got a deluge of DMs and tweets and emails saying, yes, yes, like now I know it. And every single time you play it, uh, I rap along with it. So I think that's really cool. And I just appreciate everyone for letting me know and answering that. All right, let's get into everything else that happened across Raw and SmackDown. And for anyone who might be a new listener, we will grade it all good, bad, or ugly. Uh, Becky Lynch fought Trish Stratus on Raw. Trish removed her mask early as a means of stoppage, only to pull it off later and show she's okay. There were multiple rough spots throughout this match. Stratus kind of speared Lynch at one point. Becky countered a tornado DDT, putting Trish back on the top rope for a great superplex. It was the best spot of the entire match. Then they fought into the crowd for an extremely fast double countout. After 11 minutes, they brawled up onto the concourse where Becky chucked Trish into a cement wall and then a merchandise stand. Lynch was about to hit manhandle slam on top of the merchandise stand. It was like a metal stand. When Zoe Stark pulled her leg out, she ate then a chick kick Becky did from Trish and that ended it. And then backstage, Adam Pierce screamed at Trish and Zoe. I don't know that he's ever raised his voice that way, but he was crazy yelling at them saying they would run this match back except this time it will be inside of a steel cage, though he did not say where and when that would happen. All right, a decent amount to unpack here. The lack of promotion for this match I thought was really odd and disappointing during Raw, given it was a delayed SummerSlam bout that before Monday night, over the prior six days, was heavily promoted for Raw. We barely got any like stay tuned graphics or this big match is coming up, don't miss it. I think we only got one. Neither of them got promos during the show. We didn't get a feud retrospective, really. And now we know why, because it wasn't the end of the feud. Okay, I can accept that. The match, though, was incredibly sloppy and clunky. For some reason, their rhythm was just off. And we know they can do better together because we saw it at Night of Champions. I also thought the countout was way too fast. The referee could have waited until they were further out in the crowd or up on the stairs a little bit. But... The brawl was cool, and I was ultimately pleased that they're extending this to a cage match, hopefully at payback, largely because Trish Stratus is on the record recently as having said the one thing she regrets that she has not been able to do in her WWE career was have a cage match. Now she gets one, and it's against Becky Lynch. Now, were they not giving their all 
here on Monday night because that's coming up? Maybe. That makes this a really tough segment to grade. I'm going to surprise you all. I'm actually going to go with a provisional good despite all of my problems with it because it makes sense why they did what they did. But like I said, it's an extremely provisional good assuming the cage match bangs and hopefully is on the payback card. Yeah, I wanted to grade this as a weird because like the match starts and I look up and I'm like, wait, are we doing this? Like, <laughs> the match? Like 10, 12 right now, p.m. I don't, yeah. It's not the main event. I don't remember any promos for this. I was like, oh, I, okay, that's weird. And it's going on. I'm like, this isn't a very good match. And then the count out happens out of nowhere. I'm like, I'm like, oh, okay. Right, okay. right. And I thought they would just brawl for a bit, go down the hall and they're done. The fact that it continued made up for all of it. So I'm with you. Provisional, good with how it ended. Mm-hmm. But for a long time there, I was just like, what is going on here? Adam Pierce had a great episode of Raw. He did. He had another bit yeah. with Chelsea. We'll, we'll, right. we'll get into But that dude is like, he's really killing it in this role. And yeah. his like just his acting chops and everything like that. I'm totally bought in. Just wanted to shout him out as well because he continues to do a really good job. Real quick, because we do have a lot still to get to. You know, it was pulled off SummerSlam. We both disagreed with that. Uh, put on Raw, put in this position. When I saw the time, it was 10, 12, 10, 15 p.m. by the time it started. I really rolled my eyes. I was like, man, they, yeah. Like any any benefit of the doubt I was trying to give them, thrown away. Now that it's cage match and likely payback, you have to assume it's going to be payback, but at least a cage match. Do you feel like it's justified or more justified for it to have, to have not been on the SummerSlam card? I was going to say, it wasn't on the SummerSlam card. It wasn't pulled. Remember what Triple H said right. at that press conference? Right. <laughs> you know? But um, I mean, yes, because just based on, like he's like he mentioned, it was a long show, you know, not everything fit. I just I just want this has been a decent feud, but it it's been a while since I kind of got up to that next level. And yeah. I just wherever it's at, if it's payback, if it's something else, I just want the end of this to feel like it was all worth it. And we're not quite there. yet. I feel like they could have done what they did this Monday on the go home raw before SummerSlam. It's exactly the same way. End in count out. Pierce is like fuck this, this is going on SummerSlam inside of a steel cage. And then you're like, oh my God, they really delivered. And everyone's thrilled with the booking. Instead, they pushed it a a month out. Again, let's hope it's on payback. If it's just on like a Raw as the main event in a week or two from now, that's going to be disappointing. Payback's three weeks away. Save it for the premium live event. Shinsuke Nakamura came out in all black for an interview with Michael Cole at the top of hour three. Cole asked why Shin attacked Seth Rollins last week. Nakamura gave two lengthy answers in Japanese, then said like six total words in English. Now, I'm going to pause right here. If you go and look for the translation of what Nakamura said, it's a good promo. It makes total sense. I don't have the full transcription in front of me. I'm sorry, um, but I'll tweet it out. I'll, I'll, I'll tweet it out as a video and you guys can read it by the time the show is live. Okay, but it makes sense. Anyway, Rollins interrupted. He was wearing all white and the crowd was loud for him for the first time. I think on the entire episode of Raw, singing his theme, he said all Shinsuke had to do was ask for a title shot and all he cares about is getting even. Rollins then assumed the challenge and accepted it, telling Nakamura to name the time and place. He offered a handshake. Shin then creepily shook his hand and then whispered something in his ear that startled Seth as the segment ended. Nakamura then blindsided him with Kinshasa to end the entire thing because he was distracted by apparently whatever Shinsuke said. This is one of those deals where like 
it didn't work for me in the moment, but it seemed to clearly be setting up a deeper angle. Nakamura can speak English. So while I get that him only speaking Japanese was somewhat of a heel tactic, commentary didn't really sell that at all. He's disrespecting the audience by not explaining himself in English. Like there's a lot of things they could have done to sell it and they just didn't. He just spoke and we just sat there listening and not understanding. I shouldn't really have to go to social media to understand the promo, which again was something that made complete sense and I will tweet it out. So just like with the women a segment ago, Chris, I'm giving this a provisional good, but very provisional because I didn't really like what we got, but the end was so strong that I'm curious to see what happens next. Yeah, like at the beginning, they're like, Shinsuke, why did you do that? Why did you betray Seth Rollins? And I was like, what relationship do these two guys have? Like, it's not like they had some great friendship that went away. Shinsuke has been half a heel anyway for the last couple of months. Like, it wasn't some like shocking turn of events. Uh, It was overhyped a bit and it kind of went on for a little bit. And I was like, eh, but the end got me. The end was like, okay, all right, I'm in for this. Like sometimes with a lot of these Triple H things, either the beginning or the end isn't quite there. Like he's not very good with go home shows, you know, but the promo package will be really good. And and so ultimately it got me there. So yeah, provisional good. It was a little bumpy for a bit. The United States Championship was set to be defended on SmackDown, Austin Theory against Santos Escobar. Before the match, Escobar got a backstage interview where he was called the sensational Santos Escobar, which just sounded ridiculous. Theory attacked him while he was talking and slammed the lid of a road case on Escobar's knee. Santos was later getting medical attention. Theory talked shit about the injury before Rey Mysterio came out of the training room promising Escobar would fight. Theory then took out Escobar's leg a second time during his entrance. Adam Pierce instead decided Ray's going to challenge for the title. So United States Championship Theory against Mysterio. Ray hit a 619 to Theory's lower back. Theory then caught a 619, but his back gave out. So Ray hit a full 619 and a springboard splash for the 1-2-3 to win the United States Championship in 2 minutes and 43 seconds. I'm not sure this match could have been shorter. Escobar was then on a crutch and comes out with LWO, hugging Ray, Pyro goes off and there's a big celebration. I was honestly dumbfounded by the creative here, more so the way Theory was booked than the storyline itself. So like, let's start with the storyline. On one hand, Ray winning the US title is a good move because maybe it'll restore some prestige to it. That's positive. We discussed that as a possibility before the final of the Invitational. But what then was the point of having Santos beat Ray? As far as I know, that was scheduled to be the finish even before Mysterio got injured. What was the point of that creative if they were going to run this angle with Ray winning the title? I can only come up with two plausible scenarios. One, Escobar and Legado del Fantasma turning heel over Escobar being jealous. Mysterio stole the spotlight. Santos beats Ray for the title. They're all better as bad guys. Escobar going over Mysterio is legitimately a bigger moment than him beating Theory. Option two, Ray as a white meat babyface gives Santos a title shot because they're stablemates. And it's a make good because Theory tried to screw him over. Maybe Theory gets into a triple threat because he didn't plan for Ray as his opponent. He complains about it. Escobar wins clean in an extended match where Ray really, really puts him over after the bell. Same outcome, Escobar going over, taking the title off Ray, whether he beats him one or one or not. Either way, though, the result would need to be the same, Santos winning the title. And the only explanation would be that their match a few weeks ago was supposed to go way longer 
with a huge moment at the end that was meant to fully establish Santos by beating Rey that they couldn't get to. Otherwise, letting Escobar beat Mysterio and Theory in consecutive weeks only to have him not win the title is just dumbfounding. That all remains to be seen. But Chris, my problem here is that Theory came out looking like an absolute chump. He was non-competitive and lost this title after a really long reign in three minutes. I don't give a shit that it's Rey Mysterio and he's a Hall of Famer. Why could they not have a fully competitive 12-minute match so Theory could at least look legit in defeat? His US title reign, it sucked. But he had wins over Edge, Bobby Lashley, John Cena, and others. And you just throw all of that out the window and you have him go out looking like a schmuck? I don't even know how to grade this one. It's good for Ray. It's good for the title. It might be good for Santos, but I think I have to go bad here in a vacuum for what we got Friday alone, mostly because the match was short and the way in which Theory lost made him look like absolute shit. Yes to all those points. I was so confused by the way this was happening. I was like, what are the plans? Who's actually injured? What, what, what is all this? And it ultimately ends with a very long Austin Theory US title reign ending with a thud it, it, it like you mentioned some high points but like the whole point of this was to have him look good in defeat at least so he can move into his next thing instead impromptu match to Rey Mysterio and, and it is what it is now I will say the YouTube video of Rey Mysterio winning the US title 1.1 million views mm-hmm. very big numbers Jey Uso quitting WWE is 1.6 so like it was a short-term gain and i can only think like you said the ultimate end goal here is look ray mysterio is a bigger star than austin theory so santos ultimately beating ray mysterio for the title and looking good doing so is the best thing we can do right now because he didn't get the win against him last week if you give him a win over here against theory it's like well it's kind of a weird way to get there it's not a that big of a moment if he beats ray at a big spot, you make it a big moment again. I'm guessing that's the plan. I am giving it provisional, bad, same thing like you, just because I was very confused by all this happened. And I was like, I just kept thinking like, look, we ended we ended up with Rey Mysterio as the champion. When we, at the beginning of this tournament, we thought we were going to get LA Knight champion. <laughs> and so it's right. like, I wish we could have go, I wish we could have gone back and done that instead of this whole thing. But Plans change, things change. It, it, it was what it was. Uh, Edge surprised, making his entrance halfway through SmackDown. This was not planned. And by the way, SmackDown was in Calgary. This was one week, of course, before WWE returns to Toronto for his 25th anniversary. It was a sick pop. So, of course, WWE went to commercial and ran a backstage segment before getting to him in the ring. He said he wants a match next week against someone he's never faced, Sheamus. He credited Sheamus for getting him motivated to try and return to wrestling. Sheamus showed footage of them mountain biking and Edge wiping out. Edge showed a photo of Edge on his daughter's bike. It was all like good-natured stuff. Sheamus also credited Edge for giving him advice, and he took the challenge. For what it's worth, Edge was right. They've never wrestled one-on-one, though they were in a couple like multi-man matches uh, back in like 2010. And look, this was fine. I thought it was a weirdly laid-back segment. It's really tough to build a good-natured, Babyface on babyface match featuring a legend who isn't actively competing for like a title or anything like that. It popped me that Edge referred to Butch as Pete with a sly smile. It was marginally good enough, but hardly anything that made me feel I can't miss their match next week. And that's ideally what you would want 
at least they gave us an interesting real life storyline to explain the match and the relationship. I just hope something actually develops for Edge on the show next week after this match. It was interesting and sentimental. Like the whole, hey, Seamus helped me get back. Cool. I'm cool with that. They're like building up someone I've never wrestled before. Seamus is not like, oh man, I can't wait to see the Seamus Edge match. <laughs> right. You know, it's just like, it's not that kind of wrestling where I'm like looking forward to that specific match. So it was some good and some bad with that. You know, we, we thought a while ago that Edge might end his career in Toronto. It doesn't appear that that's happening. So uh, I guess this was kind of wait and see. It was fine. I didn't hate it, but um, it wasn't like, oh man, I got to watch this next week because it's just, I want to fight my friend. All right, cool. I wouldn't be surprised if WWE ends up like booking a premium live event in Toronto in 2024 and like Edge extends his contract however many months and that becomes like the last date. I think that would make a lot of sense in Triple H and WWE, especially given what happened at Montreal for was that Elimination Chamber this year? Um, yeah. Given the response they had there and the normally hot crowds they get in Toronto to book a premium live event in Canada, but not in Montreal and have it be Edge's farewell. That would make a lot of sense. So I hope that is the plan going forward. I do need to say the promotional video that was released Monday on Twitter for Edge's 25th anniversary celebration was incredible. You guys need to check yes. that out. Him basically saying the words, saying the lyrics to his song. Love that touch. Really good. Now, Chris did have something unexpected come up just a moment ago. So the Silver King is going to continue with the rest of the good, the bad and the ugly. But Chris will be back for the last word and the conclusion of today's show. So Gunther stood atop the announce table, getting cheap heat, talking shit about Canada. Then he put over Chad Gable, but said that Gunther, he has achieved more in a year than Gable has in his entire career. Gable said Gunther put him on the clock, and now Gunther is on the clock for the longest reigning Intercontinental Championship reign. Gable said he's been waiting a decade for an opportunity like this, and then Ludwig Kaiser kind of talked some shit and again tried to seduce Maxine Dupree. She smacked him across the face. So we got Gable against Giovanni Vinci. Gable had a great sell of a chop with his knees buckling. There was solid work both ways with Gable eventually hitting Chaos Theory for the win. Otis taunted Gunther after the bell, and that led to an immediate challenge. Oh, we got two big meaty men bumping me tonight. So we had Gunther against Otis. These guys really did bump meat. Otis hit a huge fallaway slam. Gunther was supposed to hit a shotgun dropkick to interrupt a caterpillar, but it was kind of a botch. Then Gunther appropriately won with a uh, powerbomb. Super impressive him picking up Otis the way he did. Gable got a few licks on him after the bell. Later backstage, Gunther said both Imperium guys embarrassed him for losing and being distracted, respectively, and he would defend the title against Gable next week on Raw. So look, the results were never in doubt. Like Gable was the number one contender. Vinci's in a losing streak. Gunther is the champion. It was good because primarily it wasn't bad and the Intercontinental title was featured, but there really was not enough meat on the bone here, surprisingly, for this one storyline to get three full segments on Raw. It was kind of boring in parts, and it's annoying to me that they're already doing the title match next week when you could definitely save it for payback and have that be a really big match with an underdog baby face against Gunther one day before, you know, he's about to set the record uh, for the honky tonk, you know, break the honky tonk man's record for longest intercontinental championship reign. So I didn't love all of it, 
But yes, it was good. And this is another opportunity for me to point out. And really the first time I've, I've alluded to it over different parts of this program. But the Winnipeg crowd, despite having nearly 10,000 people in that arena Monday night, was absolutely awful. They booed Dominic at one point. They did sing Seth Rollins' theme. Uh, there was a, a portion of singing for Cody Rhodes' entrance, but it was way more muted than usual. The crowd was not good. Um, the audio in the arena wasn't good either, but you could visibly see everyone just sitting on their hands and not standing up, not yelling, not cheering in finishes of matches. It was an awful crowd. I mean, I, I think for the number of people that were there, you have to put it on par with Lafayette, Louisiana, and Corpus Christi, Texas. And there's probably others that I've shit on recently, but those obviously stand out. This was terrible. It was the worst Canadian crowd for a WWE show that I can remember since they've been on this run of actually selling tickets and getting thousands upon thousands of people in these arenas. Very, very disappointing from Winnipeg. And they were one of the reasons why this didn't go that well. Because the whole gimmick we saw in Minnesota, the way Chad Gable and Otis and Alpha Academy was treated as baby faces and the way Imperium was treated as heels. Then you come this week and it's like, they're kind of cheering for Gable. They're kind of booing Gunther. It was very disappointing. Uh, Asuka fought Charlotte Flair on SmackDown. This actually opened the show. Flair speared Asuka only for Eosky and all of damage control to randomly enter with Asuka nearly pinning Charlotte via distraction. Bailey then distracted Flair. That allowed Asuka to hit a code breaker. Then Eo jumps off the ropes for a double springboard dropkick on both women for a no contest. She and Bailey take them out. The segment ends. Nothing happens backstage to explain it. No promos, no additional context. That's it. And for me, this made absolutely zero sense. Why would the champion get involved in a women's match that neither had anything to do with her nor was a number one contendership for her title? Well, that was a great matchup, but the ending sucked. I don't even know that it was a great matchup. I just wanted you all to know that I cut that sound drop. I tried to figure out the motivation and purpose here, and I couldn't. I didn't need the repetitive Asuka flair match in the first place. At least Flair didn't beat Asuka again. That was a positive. But the finish made even less sense than the initial booking. This was bad. Rhea Ripley fought Indy Hartwell on Raw. Indy got a vignette where she talked about overcoming a lack of confidence. She, Candice LeRae, and Raquel Rodriguez later commiserated in the locker room with Raquel upset that she couldn't get cleared, but she still wished Indy good luck. Hartwell took a shoulder and then a back into the ring post. Then Ripley attacked LeRae, who was at ringside. She headbutted Indy and beat her with Riptide in three minutes. Candice attacked after the bell. They did successfully double-team Rhea, and she ran out of the ring. But the crowd did not give a flying fuck, and I don't know that it would have even in front of a better crowd. It's tough to blame them in this case because Indy has not been established at all, and this match gave them no reason the fans to care about her. Coming off last week, where if you remember, I praised that awesome attack of Raquel Candice and Indy all on Rhea. I thought that was incredible. One of the best parts of it. One of the best parts of a great show. Here, we got a short, meaningless match that was just bad. I know Ripley is dominant. She can go six or seven minutes with Indy 
allow her to improve her profile and give fans any reason at all to care about her. Instead, they did absolutely nothing to make you say, hey, Indy Hartwell, she can go a little bit. At least she gave Rhea Ripley a little bit of a run for her money. Why not do that when given the opportunity? Instead, they did absolutely nothing. So how is Hartwell going to get over if she gets beaten three minutes by the champion? Doesn't work. This is corrupt. Bobby Lashley in a lounge area told the Street Profits they were celebrating destroying the past and the unlimited possibilities that come with their new alliance. The Profits said the job wasn't finished from last week. And Lashley said power control and championship gold is all out there for them to take. He also said SmackDown was ready for some new blood to run the show. Angelo Dawkins looked incredible last week. This week, he was wearing a full tuxedo. He looked like Jim on that episode of The Office where he like, they say, hey, you should dress nice or you know be impressive because Charles Minor is coming in. And Jim wears an entire tuxedo because of Dwight's memo and looks like an absolute idiot. Not saying Dawkins looked like an idiot, but you had Lashley in a dapper suit. You had uh, Montez Ford. I forget exactly what he was wearing. He looked great. And then you have Dawkins looking like he's going to the prom. It, it didn't make any sense at all. I'm going to give this a provisional good. I was really disappointed, though, not to get way, way more coming out of last week. Also, Bobby, you have him as the one cutting the promo. He's the worst promo out of all three of them. I know he's the leader of the group, but Montez Ford should be the one speaking for them. Uh, Drew McIntyre backstage at Raw was asked what's next in his career when Matt Riddle came up trying to get Drew to team with him against the Viking Raiders. Riddle cut off McIntyre every time he was going to speak. Drew ultimately said he would consider teaming with him if Riddle could not find a partner. McIntyre eventually entered after Riddle and the Raiders. So there were three people in the ring. Riddle needed his partner and that cemented that the match was officially happening. Four big men slapping meat. And that is excitement. That is what we got here. Sorry, Drew, did not mean to cut you off. McIntyre and Riddle against the Raiders. Riddle did the heavy lifting. McIntyre eventually ducked Eric and hit a Claymore running off the ropes for the win. Riddle was really excited about this backstage. He wanted them to go after the tag team titles. New Day took exception to that and cut a great promo on them and challenged them for next week. McIntyre almost broke while they were doing it. And Riddle again cut off Drew before eventually accepting the match. Now, the match was slower and clunkier than I expected. I hate to say it, but the Raiders have definitely slowed down over the last few years. It's disappointing. New Day, though, put this entire thing over the top for a good. It probably would have been a good anyway, even if they weren't involved. But holy shit, New Day backstage looked incredible. Xavier Woods had braids in his hair, like long braids, I think for the first time we've seen in a while. They were both dressed really dapper, looking good. Uh, I think Kofi was wearing some type of like Hawaiian shirt and shorts combination. He just looked different and they seemed refreshed. But beyond that, I don't know if you guys noticed this or put two and two together. Both of them were carrying white chairs. Those are the Montgomery, Alabama brawl chairs from the viral video that's been going crazy over the last week. So they pulled that out. They made some really funny comments about the rest of the tag team division. They talked about Ford and Dawkins thinking they're Shelton Benjamin and Cedric Alexander. Their promo backstage was, I mean, it was maybe the highlight of Raw for me. I thought it was hysterical and really, really engaging. Regarding what's happening with Riddle and McIntyre, it feels like they're using Riddle as a way to turn McIntyre heel. And if so, that's definitely the right idea. I could even see them going so far as doing a very similar 
angle to what they did with RK bro, except instead of them actually becoming friends and partners, Drew turns on him. And that is how, again, they turn him heel and he gets booze. Pierce backstage stopped Chelsea Green from arguing with him. Uh, he was about to force her to relinquish the women's tag team titles, it seemed. Green eventually got over on him and stopped him cold. Chelsea threatened to call human resources and suggested that she hold Chelsea's Got Talent auditions for a partner. Caden Carter and Katana Chance came in. They wanted a title shot as soon as Green had a partner when suddenly Piper Niven blindsided Katana and declared herself Chelsea's new partner and one half of the women's tag team champions. I'm really conflicted here, folks. I am going to give this a bad, but let me explain. Don't go crazy because it's not for the general storyline, but rather the execution and kayfabe plot holes. Chelsea was immensely entertaining on social media over the last week, talking about doing Chelsea's Got Talent. You had superstars, a couple like minor celebrities, backstage people, and even Adam Pierce himself sending in videos with the hashtag. So how can Pierce be literally participating in this in kayfabe on Twitter, yet be dumb to her pitch on Raw? And then on top of that, if you watched any of these videos on social media, they were entertaining. So why would you not give us one week of an audition process, which would have made for great backstage segments, funny stuff, and it would have allowed Chelsea's character to shine even more. Simultaneously, I'm happy that Piper is being put in this spot. We've been talking about her being noticeably absent for months. So like I said, I'm conflicted. I don't mind the entire person just takes a tag team title thing because of the circumstances, but it's just that this could have been executed so much more smoothly and entertainingly if it was given a chance to shine and it just wasn't. So that is the reason for the bad. Chelsea did a great job and I'm happy for Piper. I want to be clear about that. AJ Styles fought Karrion Cross on SmackDown. There was a cross vignette before the match that looked really cool and said the end is near, but it didn't really accomplish much else. We got three minutes of wrestling with Cross putting Styles into the announce table with a Death Valley driver. Cross then countered Phenomenal Forearm and locked in Cross Jacket. They botched two separate inverted DDT attempts. Styles came back with a springboard 450 with Scarlett getting Karrion's foot on the rope. Meechan attacked but got beat up by a valet. Uh, Styles got distracted by that and then ate a Saito suplex, but he ducked Cross Hammer. Then Scarlett interrupted a Styles clash, but Meechan threw her over the announce table, which kind of made up for her getting hit by a valet earlier. Styles then hit a Pele kick and Styles clash and got the win in nine minutes. Not a great match overall, but I will say they turned it around with a really well-executed finish and the right winner because there's still some juice left in Styles as an upper mid-carder at the minimum. The Styles Clash counter was really well done. Scarlet getting the better of Meechan at first was absurd. Like I said, they made it make sense at the end. Ultimately, I'm just glad this go nowhere feud is over. It was good and it did get a nice fan response. And lastly, finally, LA Knight. He fought Top Dollar on SmackDown. Knight won with blunt force trauma in a couple of minutes. He cut a promo after the bell that accomplished absolutely nothing. And I have to go bad here. Given a chance to capitalize on the Battle Royal win and the Miz segment from Raw and getting him involved in another storyline on SmackDown, they instead did nothing. Granted, he is feuding with Miz on Raw. They can cross that over to SmackDown. I thought what happened Friday was a total waste of time. And then backstage at Raw, Miz promised to beat someone bigger, faster, stronger 
and more dominant next week than anyone LA Knight had ever beaten. And he also teased going to SmackDown. We cannot be dragging out a mid-card Knight Miz feud over two shows where it randomly continues on different programs each week. And we don't know which one it's going to be on. And we don't know if it's going to be both or one or zero. There's no grade for what happened Monday. I like LA Knight and Miz, but pick a show. It's Raw or SmackDown and go full-fledged with it. And if it is Raw, if you choose Raw, then on SmackDown, LA Knight should be getting involved in something else simultaneously if you want him on both shows. Don't just have him like beat Top Dalla and next week beat Ashanti the Adonis and then cut a promo where he says absolutely nothing, which is what happened Friday night. So again, some of you may have been surprised I gave that a bad, but I thought it was bad this week for sure. And with that, we welcome vintage Chris Vanini back in for the final segment of today's show. You know it, you love it. It is the last word. So DJ take the needle and just drop it on the record. We gon' have this popping in a second. That's why we always say the best cut last to make the scratch and mix for it like fresh cut grass. Now, Chris, you have been pining away for this topic for months now. And we did lead the listeners to ask it officially, but they did, a couple of them did, a few weeks ago. You know, before we even get to this, I want to go back to our last group question where you were on the show for this segment, which was wrestling entrance themes used for working out. I don't know the responses you got. I got a lot of responses to it. And almost unanimously, they said, I blew your choices out of the water. So I won the last one. Let's see if you win this one. This is your topic, the one you have wanted to be asked on this show. Let's get into it. Gian Rodriguez writes in at Thick Boy Fishing with two C's. All right, guys, this is for Chris. What are your top five favorite wrestling t-shirts? Chris, this is the question you have wanted to answer. You better not let me put you to shame. What are your top five wrestling t-shirts? Well, first off, the reason I wanted this to come up is because it needs to be said just how god awful most wrestling shirts are these days. Okay. Like, so, so bad. And they arguably gotten worse. AEW is half of it when it started was a t shirt company as much as it was a wrestling company. And there's just so much bad shirts in there. They and I know t shirts are a yeah. huge business for a lot of reasons. People like to support companies and support people, they, all kinds of things. But man, wrestling shirts. Are brutal and yet you go to WWE shows and you'll watch somebody wearing a, a truly ugly Alexa Bliss shirt or something like that so like people buy <laughs> yeah, these things so like, I'm not going to tell tell them what they should or shouldn't do with business but to me the best wrestling shirts are always the ones that you don't know are wrestling shirts okay you know like they, they, it's just a great looking t-shirt now I'm wondering if we're going to have a lot of um I'm very here. curious I'm very curious what your list is yeah it was very difficult. So this is not an order one to five. This is just a group of five. Okay. Um, and it because I had trouble narrowing it down to five. But I will say the clear number one, though, okay. is the NWO shirt. Okay. The classic works everywhere. It's been decades. People still love it. NWO is up there. Macho Man, Randy Savage, the purple one, but it also works in a lot of different colors. Mm-hmm. With the glass, Macho Man with the glasses you're talking about. With the glasses, yep. I've got I've got a lime green one. Okay. Austin three sixteen. Okay. Now this one does have the giant skull on the back. It's it's a bit gaudy, but it, it's obviously a classic. It's up there. Cactus Jack, the wanted poster up there. 
Uh, great shirt. Wears it under the flannel, all kinds of stuff. Great shirt. Picking my f- the last one in this group was extremely difficult. But I'm going to go with Bullet Club. Okay. But that includes all the variations of it. It's kind of the Bullet Club family. The idea that you could use this shirt in so many different ways, I thought was really, really creative. Um, I have more honorable mention, but I'll let you get yours first. So my five, NWO, Austin 316, Macho Man, Randy Savage, Cactus Jack, Bullet Club. So I'm going to send you a text message right now while we are doing this show, because I want you to be able to tell our audience that what I'm about to say is true. Okay. We did not have the exact same top five, but we had four of the same top five, which is (laughs) ridiculous, which is ridiculous. Okay. So my number one, and I did rank them. My number one is the NWO shirt. Obviously it's the most iconic shirt in wrestling history. Number two, macho man, the light purple with the glasses, the classic original version of it. It is the best wrestling shirt to wear that doesn't scream wrestling, even though anyone who sees it knows it's wrestling, if that makes sense. I get, I, I get more I get more compliments when I wear that shirt than any other wrestling shirt. Yeah, because it, it's a gorgeous shirt. It's just it's it's so smart. Everyone loves Macho Man. He, you know, his popularity went so far past wrestling that everyone liked him, even though, even if they didn't watch wrestling. Now, number three on my list is a shirt I would never wear. I want to make that very clear. But the Roddy Piper Hot Rod shirt, it is one of the most unique and standout shirts that's ever happened in wrestling. With the, uh, it's like a ringer tee, so it has the red collar, the red, you know, parts on the arm, uh, and then Hot Rod across the chest. It is such a striking shirt. And again, Piper crossed over, so I had that on my list. My fourth spot It goes to Mick Foley. It is actually a tie for two of his shirts. The Cactus Jack Wanted shirt and the Mankind Have a Nice Day shirt. Both of them are incredible. If I had to pick one, since we're only doing the top five, it would have been the Cactus Jack Wanted shirt. And number five, Austin 316. For the reason that you mentioned, the front of the shirt is incredible. The back is not. So it was almost all the way there. Almost as good as NWO. Not as good. Also, it came after the fact. So you had the black and white kind of concept. It wasn't the most quote unquote original. Now I gave my five after your five. So I'm going to give my honorable mentions before you give yours. Mm -hmm. One is a brand new ish type of shirt. It's a razor Ramon shirt. It says bad times don't last, but bad guys do. And it was sold on WWE shop after his death. You can still get it as long as you wear a size small. They have no other sizes available. I am kicking myself that I do not own this shirt. I'm infuriated. Maybe I do something a little bit illegal and grab the graphic and make my own shirt because I want it that badly. I I truly do. I I have to have this shirt and I'm not a size small. Other honorable mentions, the Latino Heat Scarface shirt for Eddie Guerrero. Uh, This one's probably not gonna be on a lot of people's radar. Stone Cold University, SCU. I thought that was so freaking cool. What is that on your Dude, list? I have that shirt. I, I have it too. Well, I have it too. I had it. Oh, okay. I got it as a kid. It doesn't fit me anymore. A number of years ago, my wife took a bunch of my old shirts, cut them out, and made a big old quilt out of them. And one of them, one of the squares, is the SCU shirt. That's what, maybe that's what I should do with my old shirts. I have that shirt also. It is in incredible condition. 
I didn't like wearing it because I liked it so much. So uh, SCU and then the Jericho Holic shirt. If anyone remembers that, I loved that shirt. And lastly, I will give credit. The John Cena 8-bit shirt that they came out with recently, that was really cool as well. The Super Mario uh, Brothers one, I think Mario 3 it was, that was the limited edition with the NFT. That was cool too. Obviously, I would never buy the mm-hmm. NFT, so I never got the shirt. Uh, but the Cena shirts are cool. They're not anywhere near my top 10 or 15. I just wanted to mention them as recent shirts that have looked really cool. What's the rest of your like honorable mentions? Degeneration X. Okay. Again, the faction shirts. The original one? Popular. I'm surprised I don't do more Wait, of them. Wait, the, the DX green spray paint or the one that says Degeneration X no. in silver? No, the one that says Degeneration Okay, X. good. The spray paint era, I don't even acknowledge the spray paint era. <laughs> okay. if the problem with that shirt, though, is that it on the back says two words, suck it. So, like, you can't wear no, that. No, that's fine. That, that, at the time, really... it was appropriate. At the time, it was appropriate. Yeah, yeah. Um, CM, CM Punk, I got a few CM Punks. The CM Punk Chicago, the classic. With with the fist and everything, Chicago flag. Okay, I love the yellow GTS one. Okay, I've got that one, and I also love the black and yellow CM Punk Nexus shirt. I think those are all great. Okay, um, Roman Reigns, uh, the first one when he came back as the bad guy, when it says "Wreck everyone and leave." Yeah, that's cool. Big fan of that one. I'll be wearing I'll be wearing that one at SummerSlam. Um, some of the others, the head of the table, I'm not sure. I do like the Usos ones. I like the We The Ones and all the different colors. The red works really well. And then last one on my honorable mention, say what you will about the guy, the red Hulkamania shirt. It's a classic. It's yeah. a classic. Yeah. It's a classic. You know what so else? You know what else I like? Those are my honorable mentions. Other ones I like that I didn't really mention, uh, ECFNW. That was such a cool shirt. Mm-hmm. I love that. I do own that. I, I wouldn't wear it or I haven't worn it in a long time. Maybe I would wear it. I don't know. I could wear that walking the dog. Um, the ECF FNW shirt was fantastic. And you know what? You make a good point. A lot of these shirts that they have made for the bloodline, there's so many of them, but like the honorary Oose shirt is really cool. The new solo shirt with the, just the thumb in the back. If you're a solo Sokoa fan, that's incredible. Um, Right-hand man, you know, that's not a shirt that I would ever wear, but it was cool on TV. Same with Nobody's Bitch. I would never wear that shirt, but it was cool on TV <laughs> for those characters. So yeah, the entire, yeah. my point is this entire string of Bloodline shirts, the Sami Zayn shirts too, that have come as part of it. Those were all really, really cool. So those deserve just some credit uh, when we're having this conversation, but obviously nowhere near top 10 all time or top five all time. I am floored that we made those lists separately and had four of the five exactly the same. That is wild to me, honestly. I mean, especially because again, you know, for those who don't know, we have only, we've never met each other in person or if we did, it was only once at like a college football event, like saying hi and passing. Um, but our, like, yeah. our, our, our wrestling friendship and our friendship otherwise, it has been entirely um, in the last couple of years Uh, We didn't know each other for a long time. We didn't grow up together watching wrestling. So for us to be so aligned in our takes, usually on WWE and AEW, and then to do a topic like this and have four out of five the same, that's crazy to me. It just legitimately is. So it was cool. I'm glad we did this topic even more so. It was a good topic coming in. Now, I think it's a great topic. So I'm glad we covered it on the show. And with that, let's wrap up this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Plenty to tell you on the way out. First, let's just take care of the business, please remember that this podcast is all about 
Defy. So we would love it if you visited Apple Podcasts and Spotify, left a five-star rating on Apple, took a little extra time, left a five-star written review for the show, because if you do, we will read it live right here on the next WWE episode. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, not only for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, and all of that good stuff, but so you can participate in polls, live shows on Twitter spaces, etc. Please also remember that if you already follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast to retweet, like, and share our tweets. That helps the account grow. Please also consider remembering I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for just five bucks a month or $50 for an entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Not only do you get bonus audio and breaking news posts every single week, you also get to support directly the Getting Over Wrestling podcast with those contributions. In terms of what is coming up the remainder of this week here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, we are going to talk CM Punk on this show at some point. I have yet to decide whether to do a separate episode on Wednesday with NXT or just put it all together on Thursday's regular NXT and AEW episode. I am currently leaning towards the latter. I just don't want the story to die too much because so much has already happened and it's all been coming out of the weekend. But that is the way things go when you schedule two shows a week and AEW has programming on Wednesdays and Saturdays, you're bound to be late to the party in some respects. But I have so much to say about the CM Punk situation, so please do not miss our next edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. And of course, I will be back next week with Vintage Chris Vanini for your WWE edition of the show. As of right now, by the way, I should note, the plan is for Chris to work with me on the CM Punk conversation, but it will have to be our schedules aligning order for that to happen. Nevertheless, that is it for this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. I appreciate all of you listening. As always, it is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now. Thank you.